From the nation's capital, this is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Today's topic, ladies and gentlemen, reducing violence. And today's guest is Thomas Apt. Tom is a senior research fellow and adjunct lecturer in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at the Harvard University. Tom teaches, studies, and writes on the use of evidence-informed approaches to reducing gang, gun, and youth violence, among other topics. Tom, welcome back to D.C. Public Safety. It's a pleasure to be back. You know, Tom, you do have a heck of a background. Before joining Harvard, Thomas served as Deputy Secretary for Public Safety in New York. Uh, Thomas also served as Chief of Staff for the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice, where Tom and I met each other. Uh, Tom, we're here to talk about violence not only in the in the United States, but you authored or co-authored a report uh, from Central America on violence, uh, specifically three countries in Central America. Can you give me a description? of what that program was? Sure. Uh, USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, um, asked uh, Professor Chris Winship and I to take a look at what was and wasn't working in the area of violence reduction to help them guide some of their programming in the sort of anti-violence area. And so we did something called a systematic meta-review of anti-violence strategies, uh, which is basically just a, a, a fancy way of saying we did a very thorough and comprehensive search for the best evidence on violence reduction, yeah. and then we tried to summarize it in a way that was useful. But that was just not in Central America. That was violence prevention across the board. That's a good point. So we looked uh, for all strategies um, in uh, the Americas, so North, Central, and South America, and in Europe, uh, which we think gets, gets us pretty close to full global coverage. If we had had more time and resources, we would have gone further. But I think that we've pretty effect, uh, effectively sort of um, covered the field. The three countries in Central America, they had homicides rate, homicide rates three times that of the United States? Oh, no. They had homicide rates uh, 10 to 20 uh, times the rates ah, of the okay. United States. So, so they, they have an, an extraordinary problem down in terms of those three countries. Right. It's, uh, it's a region called the Northern Triangle, and we're talking about Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. El Salvador currently is the most violent nation in the world outside of a conflict zone, hmm. and Guatemala and Honduras are uh, close behind. It's really the most uh, dangerous, most violent non-conflict region in the world. Why do they have that level of violence? Oh, I think I think we'd need many hours uh, to uh, to discuss that. Um, we spent uh, we spent some time there uh, talking with uh, people in those countries. Uh, everyone from uh, youth workers to uh, kids themselves to government officials and uh, academics and service providers. The the three biggest challenges that we saw in the region uh, were these uh, first. There really is not a lot of good um, evidence or information or data uh, about even the basics of the crime problem in those areas. They don't have good data on uh, how many homicides they have. They don't have a good idea, uh, good data on where they are, and they don't have a good understanding on what's driving uh, that problem. Is it gang violence? Is it drug violence? Is it disorganized violence? Is it domestic violence? Or is it a combination of all these things? 
that's that's a huge problem. And if you don't have good information, it's really hard to develop good strategies. But what's your gut sense as to what happened? Well, I think that there's a number of things that are happening at the same time. Uh, you know, many, all three of these countries have had um, have had you know very difficult histories with uh, uh, civil wars and political oppression, and so they are, they are uh, they have uh, weak states, um, and the the capacity of the government is uh, is quite challenged. Uh, all three are along um, the sort of uh, south to north uh, narcotics uh, route, and so they are, you know, smack dab in the middle of the uh, of the uh, the drug problem. And so, you know, uh, the drug problem has sort of three phases: it has a manufacturing, uh, a distribution phase, and then a consumption phase. The consumption phase is, you know, in the U.S. and Europe mostly. Uh, but um, and uh, and the uh, manufacturing is in uh, you know places like uh, Colombia and Venezuela and others. Uh, but this this is sort of a prime area along with Mexico for the distribution fa- uh, phase. Okay, so it's it's you, you know, your gut sense is that it's principally the drug trade moving throughout the area, corrupting society. No, I wouldn't say principally. I'd say it's it's one of uh, several, and this is really the issue: is that. No one can really tell you confidently how much of each of these underlying factors is contributing. Also, we have a really unfortunate circumstance where um, gangs, primarily from uh, the United States, uh, namely Los Angeles, uh, through uh, deportation policies in the 90s, uh, deported a lot of gang members back to these countries. And uh, these gangs metastasized uh, once they were once they were there, so you have a really sort of complex set of circumstances. I haven't even identified all of them, but a fundamental issue is the the, the lack of capacity of the government. There is uh, massive impunity in these countries. Ninety to ninety five percent of murderers are never brought to justice. They're never arrested. They're never convicted. And that, in addition to the lack of good information, creates an enormous amount of fear and anger. So you can imagine the challenges uh, for trying to do good, sound policy in a place where people are confused, they're scared, they're angry, and the system is simply not doing, uh, not simply, is simply not doing its job. It sounds like informal social control as well as formal social control is completely broken down in those three countries. I think that that's uh, I think that that's correct. And uh, one of the things that I've been studying and uh, that I'll continue to write about is that we often look at informal social control in isolation from formal social control. And I think the interplay between the two is actually uh, critical. And this is something that I think. Robert Sampson from Harvard uh, with some studies on collective efficacy has really brought out uh, and uh, other people talking about issues of legal cynicism. If people don't believe in the legitimacy and the capacity and willingness of their criminal justice system to help them, it undermines their informal social control because they engage in uh, a a very sterile term, uh, which is called self-help which basically means taking the law into your own hands. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, studies show that when people don't believe in the law, uh, there is more violence. What are the implications, uh, Tom, for this for the United States? Well, let me let me talk about the uh, implications first in uh, Central America, okay. and, then I'll, and then I'll quickly pivot to the U.S. Good. Um, we recommended that uh, funders who want to work in this region need to recognize the importance and centrality of violence to reducing poverty and reducing inequality. And that they had to, and they had to sort of focus on this issue directly. They couldn't simply develop their way out of violence. Um, we also recommended that they build internal and external expertise and capacity for for implementing evidence-informed uh, uh, policies. And then we also recommended that they launch a regional coordinated uh, research effort. Uh, to really promote knowledge um, um, in the region about uh, these very important issues. In the U.S., uh, we have much more information. Uh, and, and, and in fact, much, most of the evidence that we gathered um, as in order to make these recommendations was from the United States. In the United States, uh, we need to do similar things, but we're much further along. And we need to uh, sort of continue the process of bringing evidence to market in terms of uh, public policy and politics because our current criminal justice debate, which is, you know, Len, I'd love your thoughts on this, but I've never seen such an active debate as I have seen in the past two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a number of significant distortions that if we could uh, sometimes turn down the uh, ideology and turn down the advocacy, uh, we could get to um, some evidence that uh, could be uh, very constructive in addressing some of these what we often see as intractable problems. Well, I'm still waiting for that uh, that golden rule to come along and how we how do we separate policy, how do we separate research, and how we separate it from politics uh, because so many people seem to be wedded to a particular political point of view um, uh, or even, for that matter, a criminological point of view that may not be backed by by research. But here's an interesting quote. You, uh, in an interview that you just did with Vox, uh, you said that... Um, There's a sad truth. We know how to stop violence, but we don't do it. So I want to dovetail into the Vox interview. So we know how to stop violence, but we don't do it. Why is that, Tom? Well, I think that some of the strategies that have been uh, that have been that have demonstrated themselves to be most effective. um, And when I say demonstrated, I'm talking about uh, multiple high-quality evaluations, either quasi-experimental or experimental valuations from all across the country. Uh, and, and, uh, and so we have a few programs uh, that we really know are strategies that really, we really know uh, work well. One of them is uh, focused deterrence. It's a model that was pioneered by David Kennedy. It was started in Boston in the 90s, but it's been implemented all over the country, and there is a systematic review done by the Campbell Collaboration, which is you know sort of the gold standard for these types of reviews, that shows very strong effects um, in this area. And so, when I say that this is an effective program, 
I'm not saying that it was tried once and it was effective or it was tried twice. I'm saying we have 10 to 15 fairly rigorous evaluations, not randomized controlled trials, but still pretty rigorous, uh, that show that focused deterrence works. And what what does focused deterrence mean? So focused deterrence um, is is a strategy uh, that basically uh, identifies uh, groups of offenders who are most responsible for, uh, for violence. They, they find the people who are most likely to shoot or be shot. And they do something that's fairly remarkable. They bring them together and they bring them in and they confront them. Uh, and, they ta- and they give them a very balanced message. Uh, a group of law enforcement officials uh, from the federal, state, and uh, local uh, agencies will say, we know who you are. We know what you're doing. It has to stop. If you don't, if you don't stop, we will, st- uh, we will, um, we will hold you accountable and we will stop you. But then immediately after that message is pre- uh, presented, community members stand up, often community members who have lost, lost loved ones and service providers and faith-based leaders stand up and they say, you are still valuable. You are still a part of this community. What you're doing is hurting this community. But if you stop what you're doing, we want you back. And that balanced message is very, very powerful. Now, one of the critical things that that you have to do with focused deterrence is whatever promises that you make, you have to keep. So if you promise uh, effective enforcement, if, uh, if the shooting continues, then you have to follow up. If you promise services, if you promise assistance when people uh, leave that uh, leave the violence behind, you have to you have to follow through on those promises. But what we see is is that when these uh, groups come together and confront uh, these violent uh, uh, groups of offenders, you can have real success. You're talking about a program by the name of uh, Project Safe Neighborhoods, I believe, um, that because we were involved in that here in the District of Columbia through my agency, Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. But in essence, what you're talking about is a focus on individuals, a focus on groups, a focus on a fairly small number of high-risk people who we believe are responsible for a high percentage of the violence that's going on in that particular neighborhood. So it's not focusing on the neighborhood, it's focusing on uh, problem-oriented policing would say you focus on specific addresses, specific blocks. You're not focusing on everybody in the neighborhood. You're focusing on specific offenders or specific groups of offenders. That's uh, exactly right, Len. And that's really what we found when we did this report. Uh, you know, all of our all of the research we reviewed, you know, about 30 years of social science research, led to a fairly simple common sense conclusion which is the best way to account for violence is to address it directly. Everything we know about violence uh, suggests that violence is not everywhere and a problem for everyone. It's highly concentrated. It's sticky. Violence concentrates, generally speaking, among a very small group of places, people, and behaviors. For instance, in any given American city, 1% of street segments or blocks are generally responsible for 70 to 80% of the homicides. And similarly, you know, half a percent or 1% of uh, young men are responsible for 60, 65, 70% 
of uh, shootings and violence. And so a fundamental uh, concept that we have to sort of understand in order to be more effective is we have to stop overgeneralizing. So we have to stop overgeneralizing as a matter of enforcement, thinking that the solution is to lock everybody up or to get tough with everybody uh, or to send all these, uh, you know, tough on crime messages. But we also have to stop overgeneralizing about prevention and that the idea is that the only way to address violence is by addressing its root causes. And, you know, we can only address violence by uh, addressing poverty or inequality or lack of opportunity. We have to get specific. We have to be thinking about how we can focus on these uh, very specific places, people, and behaviors. And when we... And when we do that, uh, we're most likely to be successful. We're more than halfway through the program. A very interesting discussion with Tom App. Thomas App is a senior research fellow and adjunct lecturer in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at the Harvard University. Uh, Tom has a long history in terms of focusing on violence. I met Tom when Tom was uh, chief of staff at the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice. All right, Tom, in the next uh, 14 minutes, 13 minutes, we've got a lot to cover. I don't want to touch handguns because we could take the next uh, five hours and talk about handguns. I just want to note that uh, according to the Washington Post, 300 million um, firearms are now exist in the United States. So I'm not quite sure what in terms of handgun policy is going to touch the 300 million firearms. Is there a way of summarizing that quickly? Because when people say violence reduction, they immediately go to, to guns or they go to poverty or they go to things that are extraordinarily difficult to achieve. Right. Well, with with gun violence, uh, I, I sort of see two big distortions in the gun violence debate. The first is that uh, the first distortion is that overwhelmingly the public conversation is about mass shootings. Uh, and while mass shootings are incredibly horrible and incredibly tragic, they represent less than one percent of uh, all shootings. And so that's important to keep in mind. The second distortion is that the public conversation uh, centers almost exclusively around gun control legislation. And people are either lionizing that legislation, uh, suggesting that it's the solution to all of our problems, or they're demonizing it and suggesting that it has nothing to do with it. And those are two big, uh, big problems with the debate. Um, and, and what I'm suggesting is that there are targeted solutions like the focused turrets, like cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, that can do a lot to reduce gun violence here now without a lot of new laws and without a lot of resources. And I think that's the bottom line is focus. What you're saying is if, they, if you want it to be politically incorrect, you, you're saying, folks, for the love of heavens, focus on what works. And after your review of the research as it applies to the three Central American countries and as it applies to the United States, as it applies to elsewhere, focus on groups, focus on small groups, focus on not neighborhoods, but blocks, focus on individuals. Uh, that's where you're going to get the biggest bang for your dollar. It does doesn't have to be all-inclusive. It just needs to focus on the key actors who are creating the biggest problems. I think that's right. Um, sometimes I get some resistance from people when I talk about these things, and they say, are you saying that education doesn't matter? Are you saying that uh, mentoring doesn't matter? Are you saying that prevention doesn't matter? 
I'm not saying that. Uh, I think prevention is absolutely essential, but we need more targeted prevention. So rather than having prevention strategies that are designed to work with all kids in a you know given neighborhood, we need targeted prevention strategies to work with kids who are the nieces and nephews or sons and daughters of current uh, gang members or crew members. We need to be much more targeted. And what we'll find is that while those kids are often harder to work with, they've often been through a lot. They've been highly, they've been traumatized. They've uh, been deprived of, of various, um, you know, resources and assets that many of us take for granted. What we'll find is that if we spend the time focusing on those kids, we'll get a much bigger return on that investment in terms of violence. We should be working to improve education. We should be working to alleviate poverty. But if we're focused, if, if the subject is violence, we need to be more specific. Okay, and so that was your point from the Vox article um, when they asked, what do you think is wrong with how we talk about criminal justice policy in the United States today? If I sit down and talk with 10 people about violence in the United States, I get basically 10 different answers, and probably eight of those, again, are these large meta and um, uh, emphasis on you know curing racial inequality, curing poverty, um, um, dealing with uh, inequities in terms of uh, housing or in terms of education, and both of us would love to see that done simply because we're decent human beings and all Americans want to see that done, but we've been having this discussion since 1965 um, uh, when the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration started doing comprehensive research. Yes, criminology existed before 1965, but the point is is that you know there are certain things that we can accomplish and certain things that are much more difficult to accomplish. Focus on what works, and you're sense is, again, individuals, small groups, blocks, specific addresses, not everybody. That's right. And I think that one of the things, um, you know, I'm, I'm a progressive. I've uh, spent most of my government life working for progressive administrations. I believe in the association between all of these structural factors and crime and violence. But one of the things that we progressives often do is we talk about the relationship between crime, violence, and these structural factors, lack of opportunity, structural racism, uh, overt racism, um, inequality, those things. And we talk about it in only one direction. And what we say, what we suggest, is that crime and violence are the inevitable outcome of uh, these factors. First of all, that hasn't been supported by rigorous, uh, rigorous evidence. But second of all, we're neglecting the opposite relationship, the relationship in the opposite direction, which is how crime and violence perpetuate inequality, perpetuate lack of opportunity, and perpetuate many of the uh, outcomes and issues that we, are, that we uh, progressives and others are trying to address. So one of the things that I often like to visualize is let's look at, uh, you know, a a neighborhood um, that is highly disadvantaged and plagued by high rates of violence. And let's envision that neighborhood free from violence, not even free from crime, but just free from violence. Imagine how much easier it would be to improve educational outcomes, to improve health outcomes, to attract business investment. 
to uh, address um, to address issue, any sort of important social outcome. And that's one of the things that I, I want us progressives to do better at, is thinking about how crime and violence are an obstacle to these broader goals. We, all, th- we all agree that violence touches everything and, and it destroys any, everything, school, business, uh, job opportunities, economic development. If you're not going to control violence, uh, uh, the, all of that is going to be impacted. Uh, let me get over to something very controversial, the role of the police. Um, reports out of Chicago that police stops have decreased by 90%, and last year, they had an enormous increase in violence and homicides, and this year they're having another enormous increase in violence and homicides. So very controversial, sort of like guns. Uh, how do you address the issue of, of the role of law enforcement? Well, I think that law enforcement is an essential partner in crime and violence reduction, but it is not the only partner. And I think this is something that we often miss. People are either uh, often view the police with either suspicion and hostility, or they sort of view them as uh, in an unquestioning uh, way. And we need to have a, a, a more balanced approach. Uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk, and I've written uh, written about this publicly, uh, about this alleged Ferguson effect. And I think it's really, uh, uh, there are a lot of problems with this, uh, this theory that says that um, when uh, aggressive policing goes down, crime inevitably goes up. Uh, I think we are seeing a real spike in homicide. Uh, across the nation, um, not everywhere, but uh, in enough places to call it a, a national issue. But what I'd prefer to do is not simply uh, sort of say, this is about policing. You either support policing 100% or you are against policing 100%. I'd rather frame this as an issue of safety and legitimacy and understand that legitimacy and safety are related. If people don't believe in the legitimacy of their police and their criminal justice system, we are going to have problems. And so we have to find ways to bring communities and police and uh, leaders and politicians together to improve the legitimacy, not just of the police, but of the overall system. And, And so one of the things that disturbs me is you're sort of either on one side or the other in these debates. You're either saying... Uh, like some conservative commentators are, that uh, you have to support the police unquestioningly, and if you don't, you're undermining their effectiveness. Or on the other uh, side, you're saying we need to get all these police out of these neighborhoods because they are, uh, you know, they are oppressive and uh, discriminatory. The the real, I think, the real, the the, the sort of more common sense middle uh, middle position is that we need more good policing. And we need less bad policing and that there is no absolute level of policing. For instance, we know with broken windows uh, policing, which is a very controversial uh, um, subject these days. Very aggressive, lots of stops. Well, see that. See, you've actually you've actually uh, helped me make my point. Okay, that's what people think of when they think of broken windows policing. But when you do a systematic review of uh, broken windows policing, what you find is that there's actually two types of broken window strategies. One is a sort of aggressive order maintenance, zero tolerance, 
broad-based strategy. Um, and one is a much more targeted, uh, problem-oriented, um, community-focused strategy. And what we find is that when Broken Windows is done in partnership with the co- uh, community in a targeted way uh, and focused on specific problems, it's quite effective and it doesn't have a lot of community resistance. So let me summarize because we have a minute left in the program. You're sure. talking about the community and law enforcement and all parts of the community coming together and simply saying this. We're, we are going to go after the bad actors. We're going to go after the few, whether it's 1% or 5% or 7%. Uh, we're going to go after the, the addresses that are creating problems for us. We're going to be a, have a very focused effort to go after high-risk places, high-risk people. Let's do this together as a community. Let's do this together as a city. Let's all agree. Uh, and let's do the things that are effective and see what happens. Yes, and, and importantly, we can reform the police. We can reduce mass incarceration. We can address the excessive use of force. And we can reduce violence at the same time. It's not either or. We should be doing both. And the idea of doing all of that is getting everybody to basically put their key political uh, um, predilections aside and, and really focus on not ending poverty, not we, we want that to happen, but it's just a focus. The, the idea, in one word, is a focused approach to violence prevention. That's what the evidence says. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today, Thomas Apt, Senior Research Fellow and Adjunct Lecturer in Public Policy at the Kennedy School of Government at the Harvard University. Ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day. Mm-hmm.